Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. Today our scripture reading is Revelation 19:11 through 20:15. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a, a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur." And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and of all and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, and that he must be released for a little while. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who, to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then the thousand years were ended. Satan will be... And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever." Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for him, was found for them. And I saw the great, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. morning. Christmas is here, the season at least. The decorations are up and it's a time of joy, celebration, parties, and fun. Uh, we get these ads uh, in our emails with all of these promises. We see them on TV, wherever it is, these promises that if you just have this gift, this will finally bring you joy and happiness and satisfaction for all eternity. Um, I'm also getting these articles uh, that show up in my news feed, though, that talk about how Christmas is a time of increased stress and anxiety and depression. Uh, it's a little risky to, to share what articles the AI algorithms are sending me, because maybe I'm the only one. You're sitting there thinking, what's wrong with this guy? Uh, hates Christmas or something, they're sending him these, these things. But I, I think it is true that Christmas and this season for some is a time of loneliness, is a time of discouragement, uh, is a time of heartache. Uh, one of the things that I love about Advent in the, the Christian worship tradition is that there's space for more than just the celebration of Christmas. There's this time leading up to it of uh, remembering the anticipation, remembering the waiting and the longing. There's, there's space there for the hurt, uh, for, for the recognition that this world isn't right now the way it's supposed to be finally. Uh, that there is a lot of pain in this world. And so we remember that throughout the, the history, uh, before Christ came the first time, how God's people have been waiting, and they've been longing, and they've been going through famine, and slavery, and exile, and, and through many situations that from a human perspective feel hopeless. But there, there were some who were clinging to hope. There were some of God's people who were, who were waiting for this promised Messiah, this promised Savior who would come. And, and at Advent, Advent means arrival or, or coming. And so they're, they're, they're waiting for his, for his arrival. They're waiting for his coming. And when he did come, uh, he did come and, and defeat Satan. He did come and defeat sin. He did establish his kingdom. He did come as a savior, but it was different than what they were expecting. As they read the Old Testament prophecies, as they were thinking about what this savior would come and do, it was, it was different than how it turned out. Especially surrounding like the nature and the timing of his, of his kingdom. And the fact that he would die and, and then be resurrected and then ascend. And that there would be then this long period of time between his first coming and his promised second coming. That he would come again. All of that was, was new to them. And so now we, we are living in this time in between. We're living in between the first advent and the second advent. And so once again, 
we find ourselves waiting, longing, living through sin and abuse and betrayal and relationship conflicts and living through the heartache and the difficulties of this world, the stresses, the anxieties, the fears, house fires and problems and and things that we experience here in this life, the the war and the poverty, the things that we see on the news that are are a larger scale of, of the hurt that's experienced in this world and we're still waiting, we're still longing. It can still feel from a human perspective really hopeless. It can feel hopeless, but it's not. For, for a thousand reasons, you might have come in today and you're sitting here and your life feels hopeless, bleak, dark. You feel stuck. But with confidence, we can know that it's not hopeless. Even though I don't know your story, I don't know what pain you're living through right now, I can know that it's not hopeless because of Advent. Because the Savior did come. And because the Savior promised to come again, I know there's hope. In this passage that Lydia read for us, our passage today, there, we, we see this epic finale to the story of Scripture. Uh, if, if you turn in your Bible, we're, we're right toward the very end of the Bible, right? And we're right toward the very end of the story. This epic hero comes onto the scene. You ever been in a movie theater uh, when the crowd just bursts into applause? It's kind of a strange thing because no, no one who, like the actors, they're not hearing that or anything. So you're not really applauding so that anyone can hear that. But you're just, you're in that moment and the crowd, the audience, they're just together because they're living in that story. They're so caught up in it that, that maybe it has felt, the story has felt so hopeless, so dark, so bleak. And then the music changes, the hero bursts onto the scene and the crowd erupts into applause. Thor comes crashing down to to earth or or whatever it is, and you just know now, okay, everything's going to be okay now. And this is what we have when we see Jesus coming in. What we'll focus on today for most of the sermon is what happens when Jesus returns. What happens? What, What are the things that he does? What do we see as a result of that? But before we do that, Let's just pause for a moment and worship and marvel at who he is, the way he's described, who this Savior is that we are waiting for, that we are longing for. Listen to how he's described in verse 11 of chapter 19. So John, this is the scene. This is the scene change. Then I saw heaven opened and there was this white horse Its rider is called Faithful and True. Think of those names, what that that means for us, what that's communicating is that Jesus here, faithful to his promises that we've been waiting for, that we've been longing for, that that it is true, it's all going to, to come true, that he is going to come and set all things right, to bring salvation to this world, to redeem it, 
to make all things new. He is faithful and true to those promises. He judges and makes war with what? With justice. Throughout history, we've experienced lots of wars that are not just, that are actually the result of evil rulers. But this war is a truly just war as he comes to conquer evil, as he comes to set things right. His eyes, like a fiery flame, crowns on his head. Later it says this sharp sword is coming out of his mouth. John's pulling some of these other images that he's already given us in the book of Revelation to describe Christ of who he is that his eyes see. They, they penetrate into this world, that, that they are holy and true, that he sees what is right and what is wrong. This sword coming out of his mouth is showing us this imagery here that likely this battle isn't with physical swords, but through the word, through the testimony, through the truth that he is bringing, it's no, no less scary. It's no less fearsome if you're on the wrong side of that. But Jesus is coming here, and with his very words, he brings justice. He's called the word of God. John calls him that in, in the beginning of his gospel, John 1, where he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so this is this description of Christ as the God of this universe who has come to bring salvation to his people. We're going to see three things that happen when he comes put those on the screen. Jesus will return and be victorious over all evil powers. Believers will be resurrected and reign with Christ. And at the final judgment, God demonstrates his justice and his mercy. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but these two chapters are pretty controversial among Christians. Uh, there are different interpretations to these two chapters. This thousand years isn't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, and where it's mentioned here is, is in the book of Revelation, which we've been, as we've been studying through that, we've seen there's a lot of symbolic imagery here. It's the apocalyptic genre, and so we've, we, have, we have these thousand years mentioned. We have it showing up uh, in a place where we know there's a lot of symbolism, and so because of those things, Christians have different interpretations of them. Some view these, I'm not going to go through all the interpretation, but just kind of briefly summarize two. Some view these thousand years as being yet in the future. So chapter 19, they would say Jesus returns. Now this is his second coming. And then chronologically after that, there's this thousand year period. There's this time where he um, has bound Satan, where believers are raised from the dead, given their glorified bodies, and reign and rule with Christ here on this earth. And then at the end of that time, some say it's a literal thousand years. Some say, no, this is a symbolic period of time. But seeing it still is, is coming in the future. And then say, at the end of that time, then Satan will be released for this final insurrection before he is finally defeated, and then final judgment comes, and then new creation. 
So that's this view that this is in the future. There's chronological um, order here. There's another interpretation that sees these thousand years as another way uh, that Revelation's already done this. And so another way that we're, it's, he's describing this time period that we're living in right now. So the thousand years is symbolic for sure. Uh, and it's referring to this, this time in between the first and the second coming. And so not that 19 and, and 20 are chronological, but it's actually both of them uh, have this reference to the second coming of Christ. And so the way that Satan is bound, it's, it's pointing to uh, what happened when Christ came and died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And the, the Bible speaks about how at that moment, Satan's power changed, where he was uh, given authority over this earth and he was deceiving all of the nations, uh, that that changed. And, and we'll look at some of those passage, other passages that talk about that, that there is a change that happened. Satan's rule now is limited so that the gospel goes forth to all the nations uh, and the resurrection that it's talking about here of believers is, is where it's talking about how when, when believers die, immediately uh, we are united with Christ who is currently, presently reigning and ruling in heaven. And so not a literal physical resurrection, but it's speaking of, of how we're immediately present with Christ and at his side ruling and reigning. And yet still at the end of this age, Satan will be uh, released for this final uh, attempt to deceive all the nations and lead this insurrection and he will be defeated. Um, so which is true? I don't know. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I lean toward that second one. Uh, but it's, I don't think the most, and so it's okay for, for Christians to, to think through these things, debate through these things. But I do think either interpretation, and some of you may have strongly held interpretations on these, um, strongly held views. Either way, these three things are true. And I think that the, the point here that John wants his readers to have, wants us to have, is not to understand fully maybe and to the most important thing is to know the timeline of these things. He's wanting to fill readers with hope, with assurance that, yeah, you may face death in this life. You may be martyred. Remember, he's, he's writing to people. Some of them are experiencing persecution. Some of them are, are, are worried what's going on in this world, and it seems they're, they're ready to give up. They're ready to give in to, to false teaching or to compromise or or just to, to abandon this way of following Christ because it leads to a very hard, difficult life. And he's, he's writing them saying, no, don't give up. There is hope. Jesus will return and finally and fully defeat all enemies. You will be raised again from the dead. Death is, does not have the final word. And there is a judgment that is coming where God demonstrates his justice and mercy. So let's look at those three things just a little more carefully. That first one, Jesus will return victorious over all evil powers. In, in chapter 19, in chapter 19, what's described there, the, the two evil powers that are described there as being thrown into the lake of fire are the beast and the false prophet. Uh, they've, they've shown up already in Revelation uh, these, these two characters seek to deceive God's people, 
to persecute and kill God's people. And so these evil forces behind what's in this world seeking to to destroy the people of God, to lead them astray, to, to squash their witness, they will not have the final word. They will be fully defeated. So Christ comes, this image of him leading this army, uh, and he sees these, and they are, they are seized and thrown into the lake of fire. And then we come to chapter 20, where Satan is mentioned. Um, and, and we're going to see another one of these figures from Revelation be fully destroyed. But remember I said there, there's a couple of ways that this gets interpreted, where it says Satan is bound. Regardless, though, of whether you think that's what this binding is talking about or not, it is helpful for us to to recognize that the truth is true, whether this passage teaches it or not, that at the cross, at the death and resurrection of Jesus, Satan's powers were cut. They were limited. They are different now. Now, the Bible does say he's still active. Both views believe this, that he is active today, that he is tempting, described as this lion who's prowling and seeking those to devour, but he is not fully able to deceive the nations. Uh, In Mark 3, 27, Jesus is speaking about what he's doing when he's here in his ministry and he's casting out demons. And it says, he says in Mark 3, 27, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. The, The strong man he's referring to there is Satan. In John 12, Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit. This is John 12, 30 through 33. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And so he's connecting that when he's lifted up, uh, speaking of his his death on the cross, uh, he will draw all people to himself, not just those who were ethnic Jews, not just those who were descendants of Abraham. Uh, no, he's, he's now extending this out to all the nations, and there's this promise that people from every nation will now bow the knee to Jesus Christ and follow him. And so there is a change in Satan's authority and rule, no longer able to deceive all the nations. And so that does, though, point us toward the day when Jesus will fully, fully destroy Satan, casting him into eternal torment in the lake of fire. Okay, but I said there's another view that says, no, we think, some people think that there is this future binding of Satan that's more complete for a thousand years or for some time in the future where he's completely no longer able to tempt, no longer at any way active in this world. And so that, that's possible. That could, that could be that maybe there's a time uh, yet in the future where, where Jesus will bind Satan for a, a time here on this earth before final judgment. Uh, even so, if that's true, that's still pointing toward the day when ultimately his, he will be finally destroyed. Uh, and, and in both views, both views do see there is a day coming in the future when Satan will be released, 
once again to uh, attempt this final insurrection, and it's at that moment that we see Satan cast into the lake of fire. Then this is chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Imagine this world. Imagine the world described here with no sin, with no temptation, the, the greatest enemies fully defeated. These, these guys, these characters that are described here, this dragon, this beast, this false prophet, these, these are the evil forces that are behind everything evil in this world. Think of the abuse. Think of murder, rape. Think of the war, the anger, the violence, the lying, the deceit. Think of how there's an attempt to deceive you, to lure you away from God, to follow them, your family, your friends who are being deceived by these. It is right for us to feel a holy hatred for this evil and to feel then the relief the longing, the expectation for this kind of evil to be completely dealt with, completely destroyed, completely cast into this lake of fire. So what's this do for us? Us right now, we see what I described at the beginning of the sermon. We feel some sometimes like there's hopelessness. We see the way that Satan and, and the evil forces of this world are leading and the, the evil, the sin in this world seems like it's winning and, and we can be tempted to despair. And, and knowing this end, though, gives us hope and encouragement to hold on. On the flip side, maybe not tempted to despair, maybe allured by the deceitfulness of these ways. Maybe right now it looks like God's way is losing. His rules, what he's laid out for us in his word, maybe it doesn't look like the good life. And you're tempted to do things your way. You're tempted to follow Satan's deceptions and to think that's what will actually bring me joy. Living life my way. And there's a warning here for us. Following that way leads to destruction. That way isn't going to win. There will be defeat. Okay, let's move to the second thing. When Jesus comes, he will return, be victorious over all evil powers. Believers will be resurrected and reign with Christ. This is chapter 20, verse 4, where it says, Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And I said there's different ways to interpret this, and, and, but, but yet again, there are some things that we can all agree to. Um, whether this passage is teaching this or not, when we die, immediately we will be present with Christ 
who is right now seated on his throne. He's, he's ruling and reigning from heaven. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that absent from the body is present with the Lord. Think, think about how encouraging that is when you think about death. Think about how encouraging that would be for people who, who know that following Jesus might lead to them being martyred, for them to them be killed for their for their following of Jesus. Now knowing that when that happens, immediately I'll be with Christ. There's, there's a reward that is there. Or, or maybe this is pointing toward a future resurrection and reign with Christ here on this earth in a, in a literal way before, before final judgment. And again, I'll say on either view though, all of us, have to believe, all of us believe that the Bible does teach we will physically experience resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 makes a, a big point of this, that this resurrection, this is what we are hoping in, that we will have glorified bodies. Revelation 22.5 tells us that one day we will, in resurrected bodies, reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So, so what can we know? What can we cling to? Death isn't the final word. When we die, immediately, if you're following Christ, immediately you will be in his presence. And one day in the future, regardless of the timeline, someday in the future, we will be raised with new bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. We will reign with Christ forever and ever. This past Friday was a memorial service for um, Cliff Tulsi, Barb Waddle's son, and Jen Tulsi's brother. I don't see them. I know they're here. Um, yeah, right here. Um, last week, and just in talking with Barb, we just hit with the fact this this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Cliff's 56 and had a stroke. Um, we, as we're watching that uh, memorial service. Uh, it's, it's difficult uh, to, to think, you know, death always is. But when it's untimely, when it feels early, uh, it's this painful reminder, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Um, and watching that brought back a lot of thoughts, reflections about my, my dad. Uh, in 2013, my dad died uh, at age 55 of cancer. And um, otherwise, besides his cancer, active healthy, um, athletic, and my dad was selfless and humble and wise, a great dad, a great friend. I would call him all the time for advice on life and ministry or working on the car or projects around the house or he was, he was our church's remote IT support for a while. Um, just, just a lot of ways that um, he was a wise man and um, we were, the, the doctors with his cancer, all the way up until a couple days before he died, were saying, he's not going to die from this. Uh, this the, the kind of cancer that he had is, it's treatable, you, you, you have to manage it, but you'll live with it, he'll live with it. Um, he was in the hospital and sick, and we were going to visit him, but even there in the hospital, the doctors were saying, you know, he's going to bounce back, he's going to recover. Uh, and, but on our way there, got the call that the doctors said, okay, now it's ours, um, um, hours to days that he'll die. And we did make it there. We were able to talk with him and thank him, uh, 
tell him well done and say goodbye to him. And I'm really thankful for that time. And, but then, those ne- that, then there was more waiting. Um, he's in and out of consciousness and in pain and knowing that it's coming. I, I wrote to our elders um, that day and said, it's, it's hard now because our prayers have changed from heal him to Lord take him quickly. And it feels like God's not answering either prayer the way we want. Um, and, and just that, that waiting and, and wondering, why, why, God is, is, why, why is God doing this? Uh, and I still don't know the answer to that. There could be a billion reasons that I'll never know for why God's timing is the way that it is. Um, but I do know that one effect that it had on me uh, was that it made me long for the second coming. Uh, a, a lot of end times theology, I've I mentioned it's debated, it's controversial, it's difficult, people think all these different things. And so I think for a while I was just kind of turned off by it and, and didn't think about it that much. But, but confronted with death um, of a close loved one changed that in me to where now the resurrection means a lot to me. Uh, yeah, it, it, I do long to see my dad again. I, I want to, to be with him again, and I have hope. I believe that that will happen. I know that it will happen. Um, but it's also just the pain of this life that loosens a little bit of our grip on this life. It reminds us this life isn't all there is. It reminds us that death isn't the end of the story, that that death doesn't have the final word. Uh, It creates within us us this longing for Jesus to come and turn every wrong thing right. And part of that is this promise of resurrection. One One more thing. At the final judgment, God demonstrates his justice and his mercy. The end of chapter 20 is sobering. Um, The way it's described here, it's it's sometimes called the great white throne judgment. Because we see God seated on this great white throne. We we are all accountable to the God of this universe. Um, We will one day stand before his throne. In one way or another. And when we stand before God, we are all guilty. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, The wages or the payment for that sin is death. The gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in this passage, the very last verse says, Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's this universal language that is used here that all of us deserve that. All of us deserve his judgment. No one is exempt. It says the great and the small standing before the throne. So all will be judged according to their works and according to what is written in the books. Um, And so according to our works, that's where all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. According to what's written in the books, this could be referring to books that are recording uh, the deeds of our life or according to the books, the standard, God's God's word, the the standard of his his way, his law. Sometimes people say, "I I don't believe this. I don't believe in final judgment because I don't like it. 
or it doesn't feel fair to me. Uh, but don't, please, don't dismiss it that quickly. It's not a valid reason for it not to be true. There are a lot of things in this life, in this world, that you probably don't like, and that doesn't mean they're not real. It doesn't mean they're not true. And so wrestling, wrestling with this, this, this is the justice of God. There, there is, there, these judgments are, are true. These judgments are just and they are, they, they are serving here as a warning for us of what all of us deserve. But yet right here mingled in this as well is this glimpse of God's mercy. Because implied in, in, in the language of anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire is the implication that all who are found written in the book of life are not thrown into the lake of fire. And so God's mercy is on display here. In Revelation 13, the book of life is called the Lamb's book of life. And throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as this lamb uh, showing that his death on the cross for us was like this sacrificial lamb where he laid down his life for us. He paid the penalty that we deserved and that through then his resurrection proved that that sacrifice was enough. That by trusting in him, by putting our faith and trust in him, we can have life and know that our names are written in this book of life, this Lamb's book of life. So the question for us is, is that true? When we stand before God as our judge, our works condemn us. But we can be justified by Christ, by trusting in him. By following him. Will you be justified because you've repented of your sins? You've turned from them and turned to Christ? Or will you be condemned because you chose to follow your own way, the way of sin? Christian, when you think of this final judgment, it should overwhelm us with what we've been saved from. Again here, seeing God's mercy. This is, this is leading to reward. And I, don't, I won't steal the thunder of what's coming in these next couple chapters, but there is coming a glorious reward, a glorious end to this story. So it does lead us, though, to, to, to follow these words of Jesus and lay up treasures in heaven and seek to live lives that, that follow him. Not, not in a way to earn our salvation or earn our way to God, but because of what he has done, we live for him. Remembering that he said, what does it profit if, if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? So what are you waiting for? What are you longing for? What's, what is your Savior that you're clinging to for hope, if you place that hope in the wrong thing, eventually it will lead to despair or allured away by the deceitfulness of this world. This Advent time, as we think of the coming of Christ, as we think of what he came to do 2,000 years ago to live perfectly in our place, to die for our sins, to rise again, He's calling you then to trust him. And, and knowing that those things happen give us confidence that the second advent is going to happen as well. So we place all of our hope in him, our Savior.
our coming Messiah, who will come and fully destroy all evil and make all things new. Let's, let's pray.